You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Contract Dear reader, I agree to turn my skin inside out, to reinvent every lost word, to burnish, to steal, to do what I must in order to singe your lungs. I will forego happiness, stab myself repeatedly and lower my head into countless ovens. I will fade backwards into the future and tell you what I see. If it is bleak, I will lie so that you may live seized with wonder. If it is miraculous, I will send messages in your dreams and they will flicker as a silvered cottage in the woods choked with vines of moonflower. Don't kill me, reader. This neck has been working for years to harden itself against the axe. This body, meager as it is, has lost so many limbs to wars so many eyes and hearts to romance. But love me, and I will follow you everywhere, to the dusty corners of childhood, to every downfall and resurrection, till your skin becomes my skin. Let us be twins, our blood thumping after each other like thunder and lightning. And when you put your soft head down to rest, Dear reader, I promise to always be there, humming in the dungeons of your auditory canals, an immortal mosquito hastening you towards fury, towards incandescence. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name's Colin Waters, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. This week, we're talking to Tishani Doshi. Born in Madras in India in 1975 to a Welsh mother and Gujarati father, uh, Tishani Doshi first thought about writing poetry seriously, as you'll hear, while studying for a business administration degree at Queen's College in North Carolina. After gaining a master's in writing from the John Hopkins University, she worked for a period in the fashion magazine industry in London before returning to India in 2001. It was here that Doshi took up her parallel career in dance after meeting one of Indian dance's leading choreographers, Chandra Lekha. Returning to poetry, also in 2001, she received an Eric Gregory Award, while her debut collection, Countries of the Body, won the 2006 Forward Poetry Prize for Best First Collection. In 2013, she published her second volume, Everything Begins Elsewhere. She also writes prose. Her first novel, The Pleasure Seekers, was published by Bloomsbury in 2010 and was long-listed for the Orange Prize in 2011. Another novel, Fountainville, was published in 2013. She also freelances as a journalist and has written for The Guardian, The International Herald Tribune, The New Indian Express and The Hindu. According to our website, Dushani currently lives on a beach between two fishing villages in Tamil Nadu with her husband and three dogs and sometimes moonlights as a dancer. Her most recent book of poetry, Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods, is published in the UK by Blood Axe. And we were delighted in August this year when Tishani agreed to come down to the SPL for a podcast interview. 
She was in town for the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and it was a real privilege to talk to her about what I think is one of the standout collections of the year. I began by asking her about the poem that she read at the start of the show, which is also the first poem in Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods. So you mentioned a mosquito towards the end of that poem. I believe the poem was actually inspired by an, an early morning encounter with a mosquito. Yeah. How did you go from you know the annoyance of a mosquito to turning that into a poem? I guess there was a sense of recognizing myself in that annoying mosquito, that persistence in a way that a mosquito will really. I mean. I live in, in South India, we, we suffer from mosquitoes and I think there is a sense of, I was impressed with how that mosquito kept going into my ear and, and I guess at some level um, it must have felt that my job as a poet was similar to, to go and find as many ears to buzz into because I think one of the things I think about um, as a poet is how to find the audience and how to find those ears. Um, and I think it's a big challenge. While I was reading another poem in the new collection, What the Sea Brought In, I was reminded of Elizabeth Bishop. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, later in the collection, you have a poem called Meeting Elizabeth Bishop in Madras. Is Bishop one of your guiding lights? Is she someone you keep coming back to when you're writing? I discovered Bishop when I was a graduate student in America and um, I was supposed to teach that to undergraduates and I was very cold on her to start off with. It was not an immediate love but interestingly I have returned to Bishop again and again. In the previous collection I have a poem which is called The Art of Losing which is after her Villanelle One Art and certainly in this one I think it's, it's the themes in a way of uh, geography, um, of uh, travel, the sea, um, a lot of the things that she's writing about I'm very interested in and and she has a way of um, growing deep roots into you, Elizabeth Bishop. So yes, I, I, I think she's an important poet for me. So, so the poem about meeting Elizabeth Bishop, um, if I, unless I'm reading it wrongly, I guess it was about looking for rewarding rather than damaging role models for women. If I remember rightly, you were in a a waiting room? Yeah, um, I was thinking about her poem where she's seven years old and her aunt is there and the dentist getting her tooth, you know, and she cries out. Um, And I was thinking about the idea of loss and and of pain and Mm -hmm. how in our context now with all of our painkillers and medications, that pain is suppressed so we don't cry out but even though she didn't really like her aunt she empathized with her Mm -hmm. and then she's connected to the women in the magazine in the national geographic um and even though they're so disconnected that that cry connects them so it's about connectivity i suppose and i think the point that i'm trying to make is a about about women and violence against women but also the sense of how can we empathize with the news that we read, with these stories, um, if our pain is constantly um, suppressed, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're always sort of into the idea of numbing rather than feeling. But isn't there also an element of you're looking in the magazine and there's women who've sort of had surgery and changed themselves to become acceptable and if you contrast that with how Elizabeth Bishop became Elizabeth Bishop, there's a, there's a real discrepancy, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm making a comment as well about, I guess, the expectations of 
for women and when you open these sort of glossy magazines there's all these advice and tips given by these very air blown figures and and how how are we you know how are women supposed to find themselves within these extremes mm. one of the things i loved about the collection was the titles it had mm. really great titles and um you know, on one hand, you're paying homage to Elizabeth Bishop, but one of the poems I really liked was Ode to Patrick Swayze. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, people think poetry is about Ode's nightingales or, or Grecian arms, but, you know, Patrick Swayze is as good as anybody for, for Absolutely glad you think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, it's an interesting poem because it started off in a, you know, I think quite light-hearted way, but it leads to a contemplation on mortality. So unless you have your PhD studies in Patrick's way, you might not know that he died of pancreatic mm. cancer and stuff. And so the, the poem interested me in, in the way that it takes on a different direction because it's talking about a teenage um, obsession, really, and what it means to be a teenager. Because, of course, now I've forgotten that intensity of emotion that a 14-year-old girl can feel. I know I had it. Um, and how you can connect to music um, at a certain time of your life. So if you listen, no pun intended, <laughs> you know, you listen to a CD and it immediately takes you back to to being that particular age. So yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting poem because it began as a memory and it went on into a kind of contemplation. Mm. I'm not a huge fan of Dirty Dancing, but I do like his song, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, She's Like the Wind. Yeah. I don't think people, you know, he's certainly a good actor, but... <laughs> he's a good dancer, he's a good singer, yeah, yeah, all yeah, in one. Yeah. <laughs> he did um, Donnie Darko, I think that was his last film role. He's very good in that as well. So, you know, let's have more odes to Patrick Swayze. <laughs> Would it be possible to hear that poem? Sure. Ode to Patrick Swayze. At fourteen, I wanted to devour you. The twang, the strut, the perfect proletarian butt in the black pants of you. I wanted a man like you to sashay into town and teach me how to be an aeroplane and water. I didn't want to be a baby. I wanted to be your baby. I wanted revenge. I wanted to sue my breasts for not living up to potential. I wanted Jennifer Grey to meet with an unfortunate end and not have a love affair with a ghost. At 14, I believed you'd given birth to the word preternatural. And when mother came home one day, waving her walking shoe, saying, I lost my soul in the Theosophical Society, I wanted to dance as recklessly as the underside of that shoe. I wanted to be a pebble in the soft heel of you, to horse whisper and live on a ranch in Texas and love my blonde wife forever and have creases around my eyes and experience at least one goddamn summer where I could be like the wind sexy and untrammeled and dirty. And it was only after I found my own Johnny and got rid of him. Only yesterday, when I rescued a northern shoveler from crows on the beach, his broken wing squished against the crockery of my ribs. 
only after setting him down at the edge of a canal where he sank into the long, patient task of dying that I realized what I'd wanted most was to be held by someone determined to save me, someone against whom I could press my unflourishing chest, who would offer me not just the time of my life, but who'd tear out reams of his yellowing pancreas and say, here, baby, eat. So the new collection's called Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods. When I think of, of woods and girls together, I think of fairy tales. That the title poem, at least, you're not pushing on that tradition as such, are you? There's something, something else going on. Um, a little bit, because, you know, in all of the fairy tales that I remember, the woods are quite a dangerous place for Red Riding Hood, for Hansel and Gretel. It's where terrifying things can happen, and so you're always warned... Um, when you enter the woods. And I think in the contemporary imagination, certainly, the woods still represent a place of vanishing, of mystery, mm. of transformation. And it has a eerie, uh, somewhat um, dangerous element to it, that you would stay away from the woods, mm. you wouldn't go into the woods. But they're also, in my mind, a transformative place, and that's why I wanted to bring the two together in, in the poem. The title poem is, in a sense, a kind of battle cry, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I wrote it with the idea of a kind of an anthem and a battle cry, and it's really about how one writes, I suppose, about violence and this was written shortly after um, the Jyoti Singh rape case on the bus in Delhi in 2012, which was a change in conversation um, in India. And, and it got so much international attention, that particular case. And it really felt to me that in terms of response as a poet, what can one offer really? What can a poem do? And and I think the idea was to try and recover voice, to try and do something with all that silencing. And that's why I wrote it in a way to that that they they would come back, you know, that there would be this 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 army of girls and women coming out of the woods and 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 for me, it was a way of some reconciliation. Mm. And also, uh, uh, perhaps an element of accusation as well towards <clears throat> not just the people who commit these things, but the society that, that permits these kind of acts to take place. Would that be fair? Yeah, this sense of, you know, if you look at statistics around the world, um, it's, it's the amount of violence that women and girls are exposed to and the stories and the, it just it's never ending and it goes back so far that it sometimes feels overwhelming and yet we're living in an age at least you know in India I feel we have had so many great leaps forward in terms of uh, gender rights but at the same time it's the most violent country in the world for a woman to live in so you know, we have on one hand this great admiration for the female principle, goddesses, worshipping of, of that idea of femininity, which can be also martial. Mm. 
But then in the streets you have this. So it's really, it is questioning a society which is in a way sick somehow mm. and not quite in sync. And I'm trying to understand what we can do with this. Are we just violent and is that just the end of it? Or is it possible to get um, into a different way of being? Mm. I mean, it is, it's a global problem. There's another one of your poems that connects it with what's happening to women mm. in Mexico as well. And yeah. the, the word is fem- feminicidio, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's even a word for it. Yeah, well, large, large numbers of women who have been disappeared, who've been killed, who've been mutilated, raped. Every country, it's it's not just sort of restricted. It's, it's a universal thing. And I think at the same time, with things like the Me Too movement, and, you know, particularly now, mm. there is a, really a sense of not being silenced women wanting to speak out, women wanting to uh, say their stories, no matter how difficult it is. And so that on one level has been very emancipating um, and very empowering. Um, and so so it's not just all pessimistic, but it's sort of trying to reach out and envelop all these things and trying to understand where we are. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Me Too movement, because of course that's developed in the past year, uh, but I can imagine you've been writing these poems for a number of years, yeah. and it's really just um, one of those moments that happen in culture, isn't it, when when a book, which couldn't possibly have been written that quickly, but it comes out just at the yeah. moment of, of that cultural exploration. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, you know, in the last collection, Everything Begins Elsewhere, I had a poem called The River of Girls, which is about, um, you know, female infanticide um, in India, where we've disappeared millions of girls. Um, and so there I imagine them coming as a river, you know. And so it's a theme that's continued for me. But like you say, it's the sort of zeitgeist of the moment. Right now, this is what people are talking about, and this is what is... Um, sort of, um, you know, in the news, as it were, all over. So the poem, even though it's written out of a personal expression, has come to mean things for many many people around the world, which is a sort of unexpected yes. <laughs> feeling as, as a poet. Um, because as you say, you, you write, you're in a very different time frame. And when a book comes out, you know, it, it's very rare that things mesh together in yes. that way. I mean, it's almost, I think with the, the Me Too movement, it's almost been sort of like a, a negative pantheon created, by which I mean to say there's your Harvey Weinstein, yeah. there's your, um, well, we all know their names, Woody Allen. Bill Cosby. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bill Cosby was right where his head in because you mentioned, mentioned him in your poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disco Biscuits. Yeah. And, uh, you know, although I guess a great number of um, people who have killed women or abused women are anonymous, we never get to hear about them. Yeah. These people have taken on a sort of dark, you know, totemic power, mm-hmm. you know, because they mm-hmm. are the people who are visible and you know, we see them. And so it's interesting to see something like Bill Cosby pop up in a poem, you know. It's true because, it, again, it must be um, something that is sort of, I've been attuned to or interested in these equations of power and how they work. And so I've been interested in that story right from the beginning because that was one of the few shows that we watched in India, actually. So Bill Cosby was, for me, as as great as for any child in America growing up because, you know, he was uh, 
on that show and then to sort of have these stories come in and when you have the number of women coming out again it's a coming out of the woods yes. in a way and tell and, and 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 you think for years you know and same with a Jimmy Savile or all of these stories because they are allowed to be that way because society has allowed it in a way and now it's saying no we don't accept this anymore mm-hmm. and of course that comes with its whole set of other problems um which we will have to figure out now in terms of you know balancing the scales and things like that but it's uh, it's been the outburst and the the sort of you know release of stories has been really heartbreaking and at the same time empowering shall we hear another poem sure. what about the title poem girls are coming out of the woods girls are coming out of the woods wrapped in cloaks and hoods carrying iron bars and candles and a multitude of scars collected on acres of premature grass and city buses in temples and bars girls are coming out of the woods with panties tied around their lips making such a noise it's impossible to hear is the world speaking too is it really asking what does it mean to give someone a proper resting girls are coming out of the woods lifting their broken legs high leaking secrets from unfastened thighs all the lies whispered by strangers and swimming coaches and uncles especially uncles who said spreading would be light and easy who put bullets in their chests and fed their pretty faces to fire who sucked the mud clean off their ribs and decorated their coffins with briar girls are coming out of the woods clearing the ground to scatter their stories even those girls found naked in ditches and wells those forgotten in neglected attics and buried in riverbeds like sediments from a different century they've crawled their way out from behind curtains of childhood the silver pink weight of their bodies pushing against water against the sad feathered tarnish of remembrance girls are coming out of the woods the way birds arrive at morning windows pecking and humming until all you can hear is the smash of their minuscule hearts against glass the bright desperation of sound bashing disappearing girls are coming out of the woods they're coming they're coming do you do you have an easy relationship between yourself and your self sense of self as a poet i only ask because you confess a moment of doubt and uh, find the poets and there's another poem the last poem when yeah. i was still a poet and clumps of happiness as that sort of yeah. ironic yeah thankfulness for being in a crummy hotel <laughs> so is it something do you feel you know if a complete stranger was to say oh hi you know what do you do do you 
just saying I'm being I'm a poet trip off your tongue easily. Since the age of twenty, I wanted to be a poet. I decided that I wanted to be a poet, and I worked single-mindedly in that direction. There was no doubt that I was going to do it. I just needed to figure out how one becomes a poet or what it means to be a poet. And I think I'm still figuring it out, to be honest, because I do other things. I write novels, I, I dance, I have these other elements in my life, but I see myself essentially as a poet mm-hmm. in the world. But it's a very precarious uh, position to yes, hold. just about the most. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's an interesting position because it demands a kind of honesty. Nobody becomes a poet unless they really want to. There is absolutely no benefit to no, it. No, no, <laughs> so no. you really have to want to do it. And I think um, part of the questions, uh, one of the side questions of this collection has been this questioning and reaffirming what it means to be a poet. So when I end the collection saying when I was still a poet, I don't mean that I'm going to give it up ever. But I guess I, I'm i always playing with this sense of why am I doing this? What is the point of poetry? And it's telling myself, but also telling the reader, because a lot of the times I find that I face this sense of what does poetry mean to a regular person who maybe doesn't read that much or isn't really, you know, has this Mm. sense of poetry being inaccessible and not really important. And for someone for whom poetry has changed their life and is everything, you wonder how other people can walk around the world without poetry, Mm. you know. And so I suppose in a way it's a little bit of a claim to, to, to stake poetry's place while realizing that it's very much on the margin. So it's again coming back to that mosquito which is the first poem in the book, and affirming my pledge in a way as a poet that I am regardless going to soldier on and try to find my audience. You mentioned from a young age wanting to be a poet. What's your your origin story as a same superhero um, language? (laughs) Did you have a, a moment where you read a poem and you thought, I need to do that? Yeah, I don't know if it was a single moment. I don't have a recollection. I just know that there have been very few moments in my life when I have not been racked by indecision because I have a Libra rising astrological sign, if it means anything to you. But it means I'm always sort of, oh, should I do this or should I do that? And then once I make up my mind, I'm fine. But poetry was one of those things that I didn't really have. I just, I'd been studying business administration as an undergraduate. And I took an introduction to creative writing. And I was introduced to some wonderful contemporary American poets like Mary Oliver, James Tate, Mark Doty. And I remember reading those books and just feeling some sense of explosion that language could work this way, that poems could work this way. It was very different from what I'd sort of grown up on, which was a sort of diet of... Shelley and Wordsworth and you know the romantics and all of that and and just thinking wow this is something very different and I could do this for my own you know I could find my voice uh, in this kind of language and then I had a wonderful teacher as is always the way who encouraged and 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 that's why you sense okay I'm just going to change direction and I'm going to abandon 
this business administration degree. <laughs> While I'm very competent at it, it just doesn't bring me the same no. sense of joy or passion or, or, or wonder, you know, and that's what, what poetry did for me. I wanted just to finish by saying I, I was watching a TED talk you did. Yeah. Um, which itself finishes with you doing a sort of a, a dance. Because you mentioned earlier you, 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 know, you yeah. trained as a dancer. Yeah. Um, how, how would you go about choreographing a, a poem? It's, I've never seen that before, so I'm really interested in you know, how you were able to take these two really important passions and mm-hmm. pursuits in your life and mm-hmm. manage to merge them together. Yeah. Well, so my, my work as a dancer was with a, a very wonderful Indian choreographer for 15 years uh, with uh, Chandralekha, I worked with her. And then that sort of came to a close. And I suppose at one point while I was writing this book, I was really also struggling with the sense of this loss of identity of dance because that has been a very important part of my life and and, um, grounded me in a way that, you know, writing is full of uncertainties and things like that. And and it just happened that I was invited to go to perform something in Dubai and a friend of mine who said, oh, you're a dancer, just choreograph something. And I thought, well, I've never done that before. No. <laughs> These two are separate worlds for me. And and then I, I started working with the title poem because it, it, it opened up some ideas in terms of mudras and movements, which were... I suppose in conversation with the poem, but separate. And that's how it evolved. So very organically, I really didn't have any great idea that I was definitely going to do it. In fact, it was something that I thought I would never do. But I suppose I'm interested in performance. I'm interested in poetry as performance as well. And I'm interested in poetry on the page. But I feel that there is a great uh, opportunity, again, in terms of audience and enlarging the view to sort of combine these worlds of, of dance and poetry and music and movement and to offer that and see what would happen. So, in short, it was an experiment, but it's gone quite well. Yeah, I mean, what is dance and poetry if not all about rhythm? Yeah, and time and, you know, there's a really a exploration of time, I think, that's held in the body in poetry and in dance. So you're always, uh, you have a very innate understanding of that I think mm. all poets do so and that about wraps up another episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series a few thank yous before we go so the first thank you must go to Tishani Doshi for coming down and talking to us about our new collection which of course is called Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods it's published by Blood Axe and it's a fantastic collection I can I actually can't recommend it enough uh, I should also thank Will Campbell who does the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show And of course, thank you too, dear listener, uh, for tuning in to another episode. We'll be having another one very soon, I think. If you're interested in the work of the Scottish Poetry Library, there's several ways you can keep in touch with what we do between episodes of of the podcast. So there is, of course, our website, www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We do Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ByLeavesWeLive. We have a Facebook page, just type in Scottish Poetry Library to the Facebook search engine, no doubt that will take you straight to us. We do Instagram now, I think that's SPL Scotland, and um, we take pictures of new books, old books, visiting poets, all kinds of things that um, might tickle your um, eyes fancy. And that's about it, that's it for another uh, episode, so in time-honoured fashion we're going to end with one more poem. 
uh, by Tishani in this instance, and I hope you'll tune in again very soon. Thank you. A fable for the 21st century, which takes an epigraph from E.M. Choran. Existing is plagiarism. There is no end to unknowing. We read papers, wrap fish in yesterday's news, spread squares on the floor so puppy can pee on Putin's face. Even the mountains cannot say what killed the Sumerians all those years ago. And as such, you should know that blindness is historical, that nothing in this poem will make you thinner, richer, or smarter. Myself, I couldn't say how a light bulb worked, but if we threw you head first into the past, what would you say about the secrets of chlorophyll? How would you expound on the aggression of sea anemones, the battle of Place, Boko Haram? Language is a peculiar destiny. Once, at the desert's edge, a circle of pilgrims spoke of wonder, their lives dark with mud and hose. They didn't know you could make perfume from rain, that human blood was more fattening than beer. But their fears were ripe and loosened, their clods of children plentiful. And God walked among them, knitting sweaters for injured chevaliers. Will you tell them how everything that's been said is worth saying again? How the body is helicoidal, spiriting on and on? How it is only ever through the will of nose, bronchial, trachea, lung, that breath outpaces any sadness of tongue. downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.